Alicia told me she wanted to do another episode on Leviticus, I was skeptical. What more could we possibly have to say about Levitical law that we didn't cover in episode 3? Turns out, a lot. So much so that when we finished recording, I turned to Alicia and said, I think we should call this episode, Leviticus is the key to everything. You might agree, you might not, but I think what we talk about has a dramatic impact on how we read New Testament texts, and that will become even clearer in future episodes as we continue to come back to some of the the themes and processes that we talk about here. In addition to that, we also get to talk with Susan Cottrell about her experiences as a mom when her child came out and how her understanding of scripture informed her response. So let's get into it. My name is Steve McCarthy. And I'm Alicia Johnston. And this is Open Bible Podcast. enthusiasm <laughs> so uh yeah we we took a break and it turned into a longer break than we thought we would take yeah i got like the flu yeah alicia was sick for a month well not that long it felt like a month it felt like a month uh but we are we are really excited to be back and to be chatting with you again uh we have so much uh content that we're excited to be sharing with you but before we dive into today's topic, we want to just talk about um, something that happened super recently. I was browsing Facebook, and a friend of mine had shared a video from a, a church in a small town in Texas where they were announcing that they were becoming affirming of LGBTQ people. I'm like, oh, man, that's super interesting. I, I checked it out. The video was super good. Um, the pastor was just explaining like kind of how they had arrived at this stance they're a, they were associated with the Assemblies of God Church or denomination rather, and have since are no longer. But yeah, which I don't believe was their choice. No, no, I think they would have loved to have stayed a part of the denomination. However, they were kicked out, as is often the case. And what I thought was really great about the sermon um, was how just incredibly generous and supportive he was of people who believe whatever they believe uh, you know across the spectrum of non-affirming to like totally affirming you know he he really just embodies that pastoral spirit i think where he wants to walk alongside people no matter where they are even like i was browsing their facebook page and, and looking at comments that were being made and you know there were there were some folks who are on the affirming side who were saying Hey, why are you even bringing up the sort of the opposing view on this? Um, and you know, the church's social media account was saying, like, look, we really value these people who believe differently than we do, and we want them to be a part of our family as much as possible and to live in this tension, which is not an easy thing to do. No, it's not easy at all. Um, it's what he's what he's trying to do with his church is make it a third way church, which is a term for churches that are open to people of various perspectives. And they don't say, you have to side with this to be part of our community. They, they say, you know, we can fellowship together and be part of a church together, even if we disagree on this subject. Like, that's what, that's what he wants to do. He's fine with having pastors who are either perspective. He actually had planned on having someone speak the next week who was you know, coming from the more traditionalist perspective, and he wanted to have him 
there to preach the next week, but the denomination stopped that from happening. They didn't even, they didn't want any of their pastors even speaking at his church anymore. He's really clear about saying that they, they want unity so long as it is not rooted in anyone's oppression, which mm-hmm. I think is a really important part of this conversation because I think sometimes in these third way conversations, LGBTQ people can still feel like their humanity is, is questioned or minimalized. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so he's, he's walking this tightrope and, and I think he's doing a really good job of it. Uh, the name of the church is Icon Church, spelled E-I-K-O-N. They're in Kyle, Texas. We'll have a link to the video in uh, our show notes. I highly recommend you check it out. Yeah, they're kind of halfway between San Antonio and Austin. So if you are like anywhere in that realm, go to the church. I would love to go there. Tell Pastor Dan that we sent you. We are big <laughs> fans of Pastor Dan. Like yeah. we want, we don't know him at all. But we want to know him. <laughs> but we love him, and we want to we have him on him. this podcast at some point. So hopefully you'll be able to hear from him on here at some point. Yes, yes. So tell Pastor Dan we sent you. <laughs> <laughs> I just think what he did is so brave and and incredible and exceptional. Absolutely exceptional. Yeah, I was watching the video thinking, I feel like this is this is the the way forward. This is the future. Because looking at the, the video, I was like, oh, I recognize this. Like, this is... And I'm not saying this in a disparaging way, but this is like a trendy evangelical church. Um, You know, they've got the Mm -hmm. drum in the plexiglass cage and, Mm -hmm. you know, the pastor in ripped jeans and and all the kind of things you associate with a particular. And they're super into loving people. And they're super into loving people. And a lot of those evangelical churches say that. And yet you'll find restrictions for for queer people once you start like really diving into theology. So to see a church that looks like that, that really embodies that like hey we really do love people well is really refreshing it gives me a lot of hope yeah a lot of hope and i don't know if you were thinking about this steve but as i was watching the video every time i watch a pastor's sermon on this subject i'm thinking about the fact that there are definitely lgbtq people listening in the audience Mm -hmm. and parents of lgbtq people and friends of lgbtq people who just care deeply and I was just thinking, oh, wow, this moment is life-changing for those people right now. Life-changing. Like what they are experiencing listening to this sermon right now is is so deeply healing. And I just, I want that for everybody. When I was creeping around on Facebook, one of the church members had, had shared the video and in his comment on it, he said, I've waited 25 years to hear a pastor say this. Oh, gosh. Um, and it was just like, that was the breath of life that he needed. Oh, wow. Thank you, Pastor Dan. We love you. <laughs> Again, huge fans. <laughs> huge fans. Please call us. <laughs> Please call us. <laughs> All right. So let's, let's get into it. Um, we're going to be talking about Leviticus, but before we do that, we are hearing from our friend Susan Cottrell. Alicia, can you tell us about Susan? I've had the chance to spend time with her on a couple different occasions, and what comes off immediately is that this is a woman who has focus, who has a purpose, who knows what she's doing, why she's doing it, and how she's going to do it. She is a woman on a mission, and she's founded Freedheart Ministries. She's a speaker. She does workshops. She's written four different books. You can have her come out and speak at your organization. She's done a TED Talk 
that's been viewed by a lot of people that is deeply, deeply moving. And in this interview, she's going to share with us the story of why she cares so much and why she is so passionate and focused. We were in the evangelical church for 20 years. Rob and I did not grow up in that church, but we were in the church 20 years. And then our daughter came out and said she was bisexual and she tried not to be and she prayed about it and she'd resisted it and it just wasn't going away. And when she came out to me, I thought, well, I knew we'd never fit the same way in the church again. In that instant, I thought, what's going to become of her? What does this mean about our faith? And we'll never fit in the church again. And I thought, in the moment, I knew there's something wrong with a faith where a real-life circumstance means you no longer fit. So after, after Annie came out, I shared with some friends tentatively, like you share something very precious to your heart. And their response was, it's a sin and you can't accept it. And I thought, that's not how you respond to a human being. That's not a Jesus response. And so, yeah. So we left. Just a hard line, like this is the only yeah, option. Yeah, like we're, def- we're going to the rules here. I know Jesus talks about relationship, but we don't know how to do that, so we're going to the rules. What was going through your mind at that moment? When they said that? Yeah. Women, I thought, oh my gosh, this is, I gave you a chance. I knew this would not go well when I shared it. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. And I've got to now figure out my own situation. Right. You're not, you're not safe. You're not someone who, right. it's not about my reaching my own conclusions or struggling or wrestling with yeah. God and scripture. It's That's about, right. eh, not okay, not going yeah, there. And there was not even, oh my gosh, how are you doing? How's your daughter doing? None of that. There was no relationship. It was immediately defaulting to the rules. And that's the conditioning of the church. So I, I don't blame those women, but I, I don't know how much we just extend grace to people who won't open their eyes and say, this is not okay. Yeah. It sounds like they were quite afraid yes. of even having the conversation with yes. you. I think so, like, now that you say that. Like they just shut the whole conversation down. Because then what? Then how are they going to answer to the powers that be in the church, meaning the pastor? You know, mm, it, right. it upsets the apple cart when somebody mm-hmm. doesn't comply with the unwritten code of compliance. How involved were you in your church before this moment? Uh, well, we had moved, and but we'd been in that church three years. But it's very interesting because we had tried to really get connected. I'd, went, I'd gone to the women's retreats, and I'd done all the things. And it was like there was a, a glass ceiling on getting involved. Um, and now I look back, and I feel like there was, that was protection for me. Because it it kept it from being as hard as it would have been, um, but but before we moved, we but I'd been there three years, so it's not like I just showed up. And we'd been involved in previous churches. I was teaching. I was led Bible studies. So we were very involved. And Rob and I led you know small groups. So um, yeah, so we were we were one of their own, and we were expendable. <laughs> 
because the theology that they're committed to, which is selective, um, was too important to risk. So if I were to go back and talk to you before that moment, what would you have said about sexuality, do you think? And let me just preface this by saying, I mean, there's all kinds of things I would have said that I repent of. Right. <laughs> so like we're all on a growth journey, right? Like like I, I said things about yeah. full humanity being realized by, by, by not having same-sex relationships and creation. Like I said all those, I believed all those things. Right. What, what would you have said if I would have talked to you um, before she came out to you? I would have said mm-hmm. that People who are gay are gay because of some hurt in their lives, something wounding in them. And that Hmm. is what can be healed so they're not gay anymore. And yeah. Yeah. And I think that's That's what I would have said too. Yeah. I think I would have put it in those terms because it would allow me to feel uh, like a compassionate person. Like, oh, I don't, I don't blame them. I don't even call them sinners. I just, I don't call anybody sinner, but, uh, but as you say, their full humanity, something has gone off in a wounding way. And that's why they're gay. And yet I look back at gay people I knew. My best friend was a, a gay guy in high school. And I look back and I think nothing was going to make them straight. Nothing. Right. And so it's a, it's more like nothing made me straight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a cognitive dissonance kind of thing. And look at all the people that wounds happen to, and they're still straight. So it didn't really hold water, but it allowed me to put my cognitive dissonance inside it and put it on a shelf. That's why we do that. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah. That sounds exactly cognitive dissonance is, was exactly my struggle yes. with the theology and how does it actually play out in people's lives yeah. and what we know about the character of God and things just didn't seem to match and up. Then and then these people that you meet that are lovely human beings and, and heartfelt and generous and kind and they're gay and, and you meet, you know, other people who are patronizing and misogynistic and, you know, rude and they're Christians. You're like, I'm not sure this is how God would, would shake this up, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Why do you get to fully participate in church and this person doesn't? Yeah. And in the full humanity, you represent the full humanity of, or the full, uh, you know, divinity of God in your, or at least close enough to be able to participate in church. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, we know we've had affairs pastor. And you're still out there. Come on. Right. Oh, my gosh. Right. So um, what would you have said, do you think, about the Bible, if I would have asked you? What does the Bible teach? Well, I believed it taught that being gay was wrong. I believed that it taught that. Not having studied it, I believed that. And then I watched a video about love, that it comes down to love. Uh, and that it, that that trumps the rules. I was like, what is that? What (laughs) can we do that? And now, of course, I know that love, of course, love trumps the rules. That's what Jesus talked about. 
Yeah, it's even the foundation of the rules. It's the foundation of the rules. And if your rules don't fit in love, you discharge the rules. You throw them mm-hmm. out. So, mm-hmm. but it, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, um, and and we're going to look at Leviticus. And I think the thing that's amazing to me is that I, that idea you actually see that idea playing out in scripture. You you actually see people doing that and following that exact ethic in the Bible, in the the law, you know? Yes. Um, so I think to me, what was happening then isn't that much different than what happens today, which, you know, here's, here's what I would, I would love to know. How did your thinking about your church, about Christianity, about human sexuality in the Bible, that like whole topic, right? Mm-hmm. How how did that begin to shift when your daughter came out? Well, I I knew deep down that I had held a lot of pe- pieces of theology together with chewing gum, and they were falling apart. That when people would go to the church with with um, marriage issues or or real real issues. The church didn't have a real answer. You know, they would say, read the Bible more, come to church more, pray more, and tithe more. You know, that's where your problem is, unrepentant sin. And you're like, you are not hearing me. You're not hearing real life with real people. And you've you've boiled it down to a, you know, a paradigm here. And it, it just, um, it began all those pieces I had held together, came apart, and I I let them. And I tell you, I have emerged. I am so much better a person now than I was then. I'm kinder, more loving, more tenderhearted. I see people more. I didn't see people of color. I didn't see people with disability because they're, I didn't need them in my church paradigm. And now, wow, yeah. They weren't in our church, really. And so, you know, they just weren't part of my life. That's that the word for that is privilege for anybody listening mm-hmm. at home. <laughs> <laughs> the word for that is privilege. But we, nobody thinks they have privilege. Um, right. Yeah. But and everybody does in one way or another. Yeah. We, yes. And some have a lot more than others. And mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And mm-hmm. uh, so the more. The more this deconstructed, the more I saw what Jesus beautifully called the least of these, the least powerful, the least visible, the least resourced. And I saw them and I have friends all over the spectrum now. And I wouldn't go Hmm. back for anything. Yeah. I I love the name of your ministry, Freed Hearts. (laughs) Thank you. I I mean, I think I think about it sometimes that 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 seems to me something very personal to you. And that seems to speak to a lot of your story. Yes. Well, and I'm a mother of five kids and I really have that mother ethos and a wife for 32 Mm -hmm. years. And I, I, I just love the humanity that being in those roles has brought out of me. You know, Mm -hmm. I am not the same person I was when I was 25. (laughs) Thank God. Yeah. Thank God, uh-huh. you know, and I just, I feel like I'm, I'm so much more loving. I'm so much more like Jesus now 
than I was when I was fully in the church. Yeah. Which should be shocking. That's indicting of the church. Wow. Yeah. I just like, don't even know how to (laughs) respond to that. I I just want to put a huge exclamation point. Yes. Yeah. That our experience of being Christian should make us more like Jesus. Yes. Yes. And that's actually exactly what I was thinking about when you were talking about how like now you are connected to all kinds of different people mm-hmm. instead of a narrow subsection of the population yes. that is similar to you and that enjoys the same privileges and advantages in life. And as you now, yeah. your life is broadened and opened up. Yes. And that, and that started with your daughter coming out. It's the best thing that ever happened to our family. Absolutely the best thing. It made us, it was the door we went through to make us all incredibly better people. <laughs> really amazing. Wow. And then after her, two years later, my younger daughter came out too. So we're in oh, two wow. for five. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> but I always say it's okay. We love the straight ones too. So we're good. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So you work now with a lot of parents who are going through similar struggles. That you, what is it that you um what is it that people are struggling with and what is it that you say to them? They're struggling with fear. Fear that that they're going to miss out on this huge life that that they thought the church would give them, safety and protection and you know, not angering God. We shouldn't be concerned about angering God. God is not the the dad we grew up with that we knew exactly what to not do so we wouldn't get his wrath. But that is how we interact with God um, and how we're taught to interact. I help, I help parents. I help take away their fear, help them set their fear aside. And there's a verse that says, if you're afraid, it's for fear of punishment and you don't know God's full and complete love. Whoa. Wow. Why aren't we taught that? It's first John's one twenty one, I think. I feel like if some of the times, if we said the same things in church that Jesus said and that John's gospel and John's letters, we get booed off the stage. They put way more confidence in the idea of of love and just the humanity and respect and care for the lives of people around them than I think we're sometimes doing today. Absolutely. You know what? They put more stock in Paul. And I tell you why, because Paul was kind of setting up a structure. Yeah. He was very intellectual. They interpret that way. Yes. They -hmm. interpret it that way. Now, they misinterpreted him. I, I am sure of that, but, uh, you know, Jesus made it very simple and John, uh, made it very simple in repeating him that it's about love people. And it's about in embracing others around you and helping the needy and feeding those who are hungry, you know? So it, it's, but that doesn't make for a good church hierarchy. And so we've got to bring some rules and regulations in there, which they've interpreted Paul to do. If you could leave the, our listeners, particularly parents, whether their kids have come out or not, I mean, that could be in the future for them or it could not. Yeah. 
what what would be the thought you would want to leave parents with? Mom and dad who are out there now you feel gobsmacked that your child has come out and you don't know what to do and you want to love them and you don't know how. I just want to tell you, please, to breathe, to step back, to embrace your child and let God bring answers. Don't do anything you can't undo. Don't reject your child, even in small ways that you look at them with disdain. Don't do all that because that you will regret that later. But stick with your child and let God bring the answers and don't pummel your child for answers to questions that really are your theological questions. They can help you some, but you've got to wrestle this out with God. If this has been part of your teaching that this is not okay and now your child's come out, this is something you're going to have to go away with God to talk about and let God show you what God has in mind for you and for your child. And the Holy Spirit will lead you in all truth. Jesus said, I'm leaving a helper who will lead you in all truth. And that includes this. And But don't be afraid. Fear is not from God. Fear is in the way uh, because it's not understanding God's full and complete love. And so just breathe and and take a minute and ask God, why did you let this in my life? What do you want to show me? Because I tell you with passion that if you go down this journey with faith and, and peace and courage, it will make you a way better person than you are right now. I hear that from moms in our groups all the time. They say this was the best thing I'm much more loving now and much less judgmental. And if you go on our website and connect with me, I can add you to our mom's or dad's group and it will be, you'll be around other people who can really help you um, walk this journey. So, you know, we're here for you. I have resources for you because we've been there, but you don't need to be afraid of what your child is telling you. You can embrace them as they are and let God bring whatever answers you need. You can learn more about Susan and her ministry at freedhearts.org. Okay, so the question on my mind and maybe on other people's minds is why are we doing another episode on Leviticus? I mean, Karen Keene did an amazing job talking about the law and how we interpret the law. Like, why, why do we need to come back to this book? Because I believe that Christians have a tendency to dismiss the Old Testament too quickly in general and forget that the Bible that Jesus used and that Paul used was the Old Testament. And as we move into the New Testament, we'll see what significance that really has. But... um. A lot of times I've seen affirming theology just come from a point of view of, um, well, we don't apply all the laws in Leviticus, so let's just move on from that. And like I, I understand that, especially if you only have like four minutes to spend on Leviticus. But the truth is, if you mine it, it's fascinating. And it says a lot about not just like 
whether this law is applicable, but how they actually thought about same-sex sexuality in the Old Testament and and how they how they viewed it and understood it and how these laws actually fit into the bigger themes of scripture and the things that God really cares about and the movement that God really has in the world. So I want to just kind of set up some anticipation here because what I think we're going to discover in Leviticus is that Leviticus does a better job and and the Old Testament in general does a better job of telling us why these laws were in place, maybe even better than the New Testament ones do. And so that can be a huge clue as to how the biblical authors were thinking about same-sex sex. Does that sound right? That does sound right. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into it. Okay. So first of all, I just want to read the two Leviticus passages so we know what we're talking about here. Uh, these are in the New International Version so first, Leviticus 18.22, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. Uh, and the second one is Leviticus 20.13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So we've got two pretty intense verses going on here um if you've ever seen like people holding up signs like you know sort of these doomsday preacher types a lot of times they'll have these verses quoted on them on why america is going to hell because of lgbtq Mm -hmm. people and that's obviously a super extreme position that most christians don't have but um that's often where i see these verses cited so why we could ask for them but then just in general like why do people think these verses still apply today so two of the big reasons is they'll point out that um, it's really it's plain language and there aren't any qualifications. So it doesn't say like, um, don't do this. Oh, unless you are in a committed relationship or unless you are gay or bisexual, it just says don't do this. There's no qualification, right? Um, right, and it's and, and it's a command, right? And you don't yeah. necessarily see that same type of command in other verses, right? It's just a rule. It's a rule. So there it is. There's the rule. It's it's really clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other one is specifically pointing to Leviticus 2013. They'll point out that there's a death penalty for both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it kind of says don't have sex with a with a man as with a woman. So that would indicate, um, which we have lots of data about this, that that would indicate that one is behaving as a man and treating the other one as a woman. So one is taking a dominant sexual position. The other is taking a p- passive or being forced into a passive situation. So um, so they say, look, this isn't rape. This isn't exploitation because, look, there's a be- death penalty for both of them, both parties. So it's mutual culpability. Okay. Got it. But isn't it true that like Christians really don't follow the Old Testament law today? Like Jesus came to fulfill the law. Um, and, and so really where we get the majority of our rules and ethics is from the New Testament. Right. So you're quoting Matthew 5.17. And Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, but we don't eat shellfish. You know, we wear mixed fabric like I have on a tri-blend shirt right now. It's very comfortable. And those are all things that are explicitly stated as wrong in Leviticus. So what's going on here? The key is really, um, and you find this right after Jesus made that statement, he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he quotes many of the Old Testament laws, and he doesn't quote them in a way to say, look, they don't apply anymore. He quotes them a way to get at the underlying meaning. Like He says, you know, you've heard it said that you shall not kill, but I say, don't even be angry. Don't call somebody worthless. Um, don't don't hate somebody, essentially, right? So he's mm-hmm. saying, you know, we have this law that says don't kill anybody. But, you know, actually in the Old Testament, we have this story of the first murder, and the first murder began with anger. And so Jesus is taking that law, and he's actually, in this case, taking it further and saying the intent behind the law, don't even be angry, like love each other, care for each other. You know, don't be like Cain who said, I'm not my brother's keeper. Be your brother's keeper. Care for one another. Don't be angry. So um, <clears throat> he's not saying like these laws have no meaning. Quite the opposite. He's saying these laws do have meaning and we need to mine them for meaning. We need to understand the big picture of what that meaning and what that purpose is. And Jesus quoted the Old Testament constantly. What we call the Old Testament, it was just the Bible for him. In in his in his wanderings in in the in the forty days in the wilderness, he did nothing but quote Deuteronomy, which is the law. So it is important, and it does matter, even though some of the aspects of how it's applied might shift and really deepen under the teachings of Jesus. Would it be fair to say that Jesus is trying to help his audience grow up in a sense? Like I'm imagining a parent with a child saying, don't hit your sister, don't hit your sister, you know, and really the underlying thing is like, you want your kids to have this great, healthy relationship, but, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, get into this nitty gritty command of like, don't hit your sister. That's the rule <laughs> Yeah. in order to achieve like a deeper purpose. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. there pretty clearly. Sometimes it takes some more effort, but it's discernible, and sometimes it's really hard to tell definitively. Like it's not it's not a it's not a science. It's not an exact science anyway. Mm-hmm. But I think in Leviticus 18 and 21 in, in these texts we're looking at, I think we have enough to go on to know what they were talking about actually. Okay. Well, can you kind of like break that down for us? What what do we have to go on and how does that inform how we read those texts? Okay. First, let's look at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. That's the one where it says, if a man lies with a man, as with a woman, both of them shall be put to death. So doesn't that say mutual culpability? Well, always do this. Um, If you're looking at a verse, don't just look at that verse. Pull up in your Bible, look at the text around it. When you do that with Leviticus 20, you'll notice most translations... um, recognize a section from verse 10 to verse 16. Now, the verses in this section 
have a lot of similarities. It's talking about different sexual behaviors that are against the law. And in all situations, both parties are put to death. And it's regardless of culpability. Like, surely, surely both parties are not equally culpable in all these situations. So let's look at a couple of them. Um, if a man commits adultery with a wife of his neighbor, both adulterer and adulteress shall be put to death. Oh, okay, we could see how that could easily be a situation where both people have culpability, but maybe not every single time, right? Um, verse 12, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. So the interesting thing about this is a daughter-in-law would be very much um, at the the whim and the mercy of her um, father-in-law because he's the big-time patriarch in the family. So she doesn't actually have very much authority and she's very vulnerable to him. And yet both of them are supposed to be put to death. Now, maybe you think I'm stretching it. Well, there's one situation in here where you just can't say that. And it's verse 15. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death and you shall kill the animal. So every single scenario in this section, both people are put to death, um, including if it's not a people, if it's an animal. The animal is not culpable. This is not about the culpability of both parties. Um, and here's an interesting thing about this as well. When you study the Old Testament law, you look not just at what the rules are, but how they're applied in the narrative of the text. The Old Testament law isn't just like some book of rules that are passed by a legislative body that are supposed to be applied uh, by a judicial branch. You know, it's not like what we have now. That's a very Roman idea of law. But what they had was a law that appeared in the context of a narrative, and the narrative helps you to understand the law. And when you actually look at these situations when they uh, play out in the narrative, these laws aren't applied in that way without any sense of deliberating or trying to understand what the situation in the scenario was. They just they just weren't. There were a lot the the factors around the actual situation really mattered and they were taken into account when these situations actually came up. And here's another interesting thing about the law. There's an actually not even a single case in the Old Testament where somebody does something that's against the law and they and they quote chapter and verse and say, you've broken this law, here's your punishment. What they generally do is actually take the person to um, a judge. You know, in, in the book of Judges, it would be an actual judge or like King Solomon. You remember the stories about coming to King Solomon or Moses and the way he kind of set up a council of people to judge and determine. And in none of those stories that we have, where the judgment is made, are they they quoting chapter and verse and a, and just saying, "Well, here's the rule. Now we do the rule." Does that make sense? Yes. What are they doing instead? Like sometimes, if if it's in the wilderness period of time, then they'll go to Moses for the particularly tough cases, and Moses will go inquire directly of God. Okay. And and God will say, "Here's what to do." There's this super interesting story of Terza. I don't know where it is directly but um you know there's a rule that women can't inherit the land and there's this this family that um has only daughters and the land is going to pass on to like a different branch of the family and terza the oldest daughter comes to the judge and eventually to moses and says 
I don't want this to happen. I want to be given the ability to inherit the land. This is a clear violation of the law. Moses goes to God. Um, there's some period of determination. It's not just like, bam, it's, it's, it's a period of determination and consideration. And then Moses changes the law. <laughs> like he literally has a new law. Like if a family has only daughters, the daughter is able to inherit. And this was like very soon after the law was passed. So this isn't like a new culture or a new, this is just like, oh, you know, we weren't really aware that this could arise before. Now we're aware of it. This is, this is a more just way to, to, to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. So it's not, it's not like some old timey law, like from the 1700s, you know, it's like, oh, we passed this law a year ago, but we made a mistake. Exactly. Or like, we, we weren't oh, thinking it through. There's an exception. That kind of gives you an idea just, just to kind of answer that question about Leviticus 1821 and how the law, law should be um, interpreted. Um, there's also a clue in in the, both of these texts. It, it uses a really different phrasing. Like most of the time when it talks about um, a sexual violation, it says – um, you know, commit adultery or to lie with or to uncover the nakedness of like those are the or to go into like I assume that means go into the tent anyway. But those are the those are the typical ways of describing um, a sexual encounter. But we find something really different here. What it says is that a man lies with a man as with a woman. It's a very unique phraseology. Um, and it's definitely not the way we would describe it today, right? Like right. two two men who um, are, let's say, that they're married and they have a sexual relationship. One of them isn't treating the other like a woman. Like that's not the way we conceptualize that. Um, no, but, it's almost an offensive thing to say. Right. So, but for them, it made a lot of sense because it fit in with the way that the narrative of the Torah actually explains um, how same-sex sex played out in the ancient Near Eastern world. And that's very important because if you go to Leviticus chapter 18, if you look at verse 30, it says something we usually miss. What does it say? It says, so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs Um it would be abominable or like abomination. So that word abomination applies to everything in the chapter. Um, never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. So he's saying like, these things have happened in the past. Don't, yep. don't repeat your mistakes. Yep. Exactly. Okay, so um, first thing... Or your mistakes or the mistakes of others. Um, actually, in verse 28, it says, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you, which is the Canaanites. Okay. So, like, people in the past, maybe not the Israelites directly, but people in the past have done these things and it was bad. Okay. So, let's talk about the Canaanites. Okay. The Canaanites have an origin story. That origin story shows up in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 is the story of um, Noah. After the flood, 
um, and they land on dry land. Noah plants a vineyard, makes wine, and gets drunk. This is like the first thing he does. Which probably traumatized the poor soul. Yeah, to be fair, like if I just watched all my neighbors drown and die, I I would probably just want to get drunk too. Right. Um, So that's what he does. So he's gotten drunk and he's lying in his tent and he is naked. And one of his sons comes in and sees his his son Ham. His name is Ham? His name, yes. Like the pig meat? No, it does not mean pig meat. It's Hebrew, Steve. Well, no, I know it doesn't mean <laughs> pig meat. But it's the same. It is the same word we use for pork. Okay, it's a terrible name. That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so his son named Ham um, goes, he comes into the tent and he sees that Noah is naked. Right. So dad's, now, dad's naked, passed out. Dad is naked and passed out. Now, Something ambiguous happens. I'm not going to pretend to understand exactly what it is. But the word that is used for the way that Ham looks at Noah definitely has sexual overtones. It's like he kind of gazed at his nakedness, right? Really? And the the phrase to uncover the nakedness of someone is used for is used for sex. But Ham doesn't uncover Noah's nakedness. He does it himself. And yet there's still... Like, there's these implications that are not clear. So, I mean, it's not saying that he raped his father, Mm -hmm. but there's some sexual overtone here for sure. So, okay, I had a seminary professor. He said that she said that uh, Ham was gay and turned on by his dad's naked body. Okay. Kind of bizarre. Yeah. Does that feel like a stretch to you? Yeah, like straight people aren't turned on by their parents being naked. And guess what? Neither are gay people. But (laughs) (laughs) um, the next thing that Ham does is he goes and he immediately tells his brothers. Why? Because he is trying to shame his father. Oh. This is an incredibly shameful thing for Noah to be in this position and for his son to have gazed at him like that. Now, we're not used to thinking about sex in terms of domination. Mm -hmm. And we're not used to thinking about sex between men in terms of one man shaming and dominating another. But most cultures throughout time have thought about it that way. Um, And they've actually thought about sex with a man with a woman as the man dominating the woman also. And that was just the way it was supposed to be. So um, to treat a man that way is even like an emphatic domination. To treat a woman that way is a domination. But to treat a man that way is an emphatic domination domination because he's not supposed to be treated that way. Right. With the woman, that's just normal. The women are always dominated. But with a man, like he has a certain station in life that is being violated. Yeah, and you could see this. You can see this in the Old Testament. You can see this in Greek and Roman culture. In most, you know, most cultures throughout time have seen it this way, and it's not like nothing new. Like male to male rape is still used in war and in prisons in the U.S. as as a way of dominating and humiliating and shaming a man. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nothing. It's nothing new. It's just that we have an additional thing now that's different, where it's not. A, a domination or a humiliation it's an expression of love and care with someone you have a relationship with 
that's the the thing that doesn't really show up in most cultures. So so you have this happening um, where Ham tries to humiliate his, his father. Ham's brothers respond to this by going into the tent backwards, walking backwards with their and with their eye co- eyes covered with a blanket and covering their father. So their reaction is the polar opposite. They don't even want to accidentally glance any part of him. What they're trying to do is restore his honor and undo the shame. They're, they're showing respect and honor for their father. So Ham is trying to kind of tear down the patriarch, maybe to maybe to um, you know establish more power for himself. His brothers respond in an opposite kind of way. And this is really important because Ham is the father of the Canaanites, according to the Old Testament narrative. Yeah, I just pulled up the chapter right here. Um, and, and Noah curses him after he finds out what has happened. Um, oh, yeah. In verse, and I'm in Genesis 9, 25 here. He says, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Like this is, this is the whole origin story of the yes. nation of Canaan is rooted in this sexual shame. Right, which provides justification. This is the first part of a broader narrative that provides justification for Israel supplanting Canaan in the promised land, Mm -hmm. which is kind of problematic if you think about it. Like these poor Canaanites, um, it was kind of, I wouldn't have wanted to be a Canaanite, enslaved and and slaughtered. But um, this is part of what kind of says, you know, morally, this is what has to happen. that's that's how this this argument kind of gets established in this idea, and it's right here. Curse be Canaan, servant of servants. You know, he, she, he's going to be a slave to his brothers, um, right? And Israel comes from one of the brothers, of course. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So that's the origin story of Canaan. Now, the next time we find Canaan is um, Abraham and Lot. Hmm. Are are coming to this new land, and they come to this this new land that God has called them to. And Abraham says, "Let's divide up the land." Lot looks around and he sees this um, Canaanite city of Sodom and Gomorrah. What? And he says, that's the land I want. I want to live in this valley, and I want to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the next time we find. The Canaanites. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost too perfect. It's right. Like it just, <laughs> it tells you exactly what is going on here. Okay. Cause, cause we talked about the story of Sodom in episode two, Ramel Parks weekly just killed it. Um, yeah. It was an amazing conversation we had with him about this story. Um, but can you just kind of sum up the conclusion of that? Yeah, uh, we're not going to go into detail. So if you if I say this conclusion and you're like, that's bonkers, go back and listen to that episode. Um, it's not bonkers. So the issue that was going on with Sodom and Gomorrah was that they wanted to, uh, in the most dramatic, the most aggressive way they possibly could, they wanted to let any strangers any foreigners know that they were dangerous and not to be trusted and don't mess with them and so 
um, you know, God sends his messengers into Sodom and Gomorrah. The people of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, every single man in the city, from the oldest man to the youngest kid, comes to rape these people. And um, that doesn't that doesn't happen. But what you find here is the seed of what Ham was doing grown and manifested in this hideous fullness of of this idea. It's come now to its conclusion. Right. What started as like this inappropriate glance, whatever we want to however we want to describe that has now turned into full blown gang rape like. This is mm-hmm. this is the thread that they've been pulling on, right? At first, it was kind of an attempt to shame his father by talking to his brothers. Now it's an attempt to shame by rape. Mm. So when you look at Leviticus chapter eighteen, and it says, "Don't do what was done before you on this land of the people who I kicked out and spewed out of this land," what do you think that means? Right. It's like, don't, don't be shaming each other. Don't be degrading one another. Don't be dominating people. Don't be, it's, it's all about exclusion and separation and destruction. And this practice of a man sleeping with a man as with a woman to deeply, deeply shame him, to say, I have absolute dominance over you. You cannot even retain your manliness. That's how it was understood in the Old Testament. Yeah, and so that's how Jesus would have understood it. That's how Paul would have understood it. Like that was that was their context for that kind of behavior, right? The Romans were not much different. We'll talk about that later. There's 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 folks who kind of represent the 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 Greeks and Romans as this kind of sexually open place, but particularly when you're speaking about the Romans, particularly you're speaking of them in the first century when when Jesus was around and when Paul was around, they were they were not much different from this at all, mm. at all. But we will definitely get to that later. So it's not surprising that Paul, you know, Jesus doesn't really say anything about it. But it's not surprising that that Paul would look at the Roman culture and see in it the same thing that he would see in the Old Testament. then contrast that to what we're talking about today. You know, Terza came along and said, hey, I've got a different situation for you. Like this law was intended to uh, keep keep the land in the family. It was kind of assumed that there would be a brother in the family. And, and so the, the land goes to the brother. It doesn't go to a sister. But we don't have a brother in the family. This is a different situation. We have a new awareness. This is all the stuff we talked about with Karen Keene, right? Mm-hmm. You had to kind of understand what the purpose and intention of the law was. And this purpose and intention of the law to protect uh, men from this incredibly shaming, violent experience, this intention of the law is very much in harmony with all of Scripture and the concern for justice and love and care and concern among God's people and among all people. So it's very much in line. Now, if you if you take a law that was meant to accomplish this 
goal of justice pr protection, respecting and honoring the humanity of all people, and apply that same rule in a situation and understanding that's dramatically different. Like there's a new awareness, there's a new scenario, but you don't acknowledge that this is different than the old scenario. When you when you have a new awareness, you come to a new understanding, you go through that process like they did of coming to God and saying, hey, here's the situation. Like, what do we do? How do we wrestle with this? How do we best honor, love, and protect the will of God in this situation? That is what the people of God have always done in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it was about the Gentiles, for example, you know, the way that Jesus interacted with the Samaritans as well. I mean, this is how people behaved in the Bible. So it's saying we should not um, say, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> we, sh we should consider that this situation needs a fresh look. Right. And so just to like bring it all home, like today we are living in a context where our understanding of gender is vastly different than it was at that time. Our understanding of a man who would have sex with a man is vastly different, where in that context, it was only viewed through the lens of domination and shame. Today, we can view it through the lens of mutuality and love and commitment. And and the view of a man having sex with a woman is dramatically different. It's not seen as this shaming, degrading thing, I would hope. And there's there's a testament to this in the Bible as well. The Song of Songs presents sex between a man as a, and a woman as something remarkably egalitarian. That, that idea of shame is not present in the Song of Songs, but it's present in many other parts of the Bible and within, within the cultures. You know, there's, there's, there's cultures that God is responding to and the law is responding to where these ideas are deeply ingrained. And so now with our awareness of LGBTQ people and the fact that what we want is the same thing that what straight people want out of relationships, like we have to then change how we approach and read the text. It is extremely legitimate to say, based on the Torah and the Hebrew Bible, this is an understanding that is presented of what it is for a man to have sex with a man as with a woman. This is the understanding. And now we have a different understanding. And now we have to consider this fresh and anew with the principles God has given us for what is just and true and good. Yeah. It's absolutely biblical. And that's not a radical thing to do. That's actually a biblical thing to do. Yeah. And and historically Christianity has done this many times in many situations. So it's not it's not even uh, historically or according to tradition a, a new and radical thing to do. Now it always appears radical when these kinds of issues come on the scene. It always appears radical, but the church has accepted issue after issue you know for for a long time christians were shockingly hateful towards jews it was a common like schoolyard insult to call a jewish child a jesus killer wow awful 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 things i mean the things that martin luther said about jewish people are horrible and all that didn't really change until after the holocaust mm -hmm. and Christians started to wake up to their anti-Semitism. But, you know, you talk about Jewish people, um, the way we speak about them today with respect, and you, hopefully we do, you speak about them that way a couple hundred years ago or for most of Christian tradition, and uh, you're not going to get very far. That was not the way that Christians 
they, you know, Christians had some learning and growing to do in that respect. Same thing with slavery, same thing with, um, with women, you know, Galileo, you know, you, the, these issues come up. Right. And they always look radical at first, always. If you were a Christian in the 1850s, slavery was radical. If you were a Christian throughout all of history, respecting and loving Jewish people was radical. And yet, if you were that person, then we look back on you and say you were on the right side of history. And Mm -hmm. um, I hope that um, we can say the same thing about people today who are are fighting for the affirmation and inclusion of LGBTQ people. So I want to say, too, that for people who are still on the fence, that what you're doing is also a biblical thing because there's this period of discernment and wrestling and trying to understand the movement of the spirit when these new realities come to light. Like It's not like you're supposed to just jump on the bandwagon immediately. There needs to be a period of learning and discernment and seeking the Holy Spirit and trying to understand and being open to both possibilities. And if that's where you find yourself and you're like, hey, this is new to me and I you know I have never heard this before or this is striking me in a new way that it never has before and I just I really don't know what I think about this it yeah I'm struggling with it um, you are finding yourself in a very biblical place a place that the writers of scripture and and um, the Christians and the Jewish people within scripture who weren't even writers of scripture but the way that they were struggling and seeking to know the truth. Um, You're finding yourself in that place along with them. And that's really, uh, it might be a little bit unsettling, but ultimately that is a really good place to be. And and you're the reason this entire podcast exists because we love you and we respect you. um, And we were there once ourselves. Um, So know that this will always be a home for you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Open Bible Podcast. You can learn more at our website, openbiblepodcast.com, or follow us on social media. We are at Open Bible Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I can't wait to continue to have these conversations around LGBTQ people, the church, and scripture. Looking forward to talking to you soon.